0: Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. The title for today's message, if you're making notes, is Behold Your Redeemer in His Greatness. We've covered so far several attributes of the Lord. We've looked at His judgment, His holiness, His wisdom and his victory, and today we're going to be looking at his greatness, and we're going to read, at least by way of introduction, from verse 9 through to the end of verse 11. Let's see what God's Word has to say to us today. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. that are with young. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do thank you for your word. And Lord, as we gather around your word today, would we gather as lambs before the great shepherd? Lord, would you help us to see you in the context of Isaiah 40? And would you help us to see what a comfort that brings to us? Lord, open our eyes to behold the wonders of your word and do this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Job 5, verse 7 says, As surely as sparks fly upwards, man is born to trouble. It's not one of the most encouraging verses you've ever come across in your Bibles, but it's true, isn't it? As sure as sparks fly upwards, Man is indeed born to trouble. You go to the hospital because you're concerned about something that's going on in your body. And the doctor lets you know, whether it be with yourself, or with your spouse, or with your child. that unfortunately, it's bad news. Maybe this isn't even something that you're going to recover from. Maybe, in fact, this is something that's going to take you home to glory. The girl that you've been wanting to marry, you've been hoping to marry, you maybe even bought the ring to marry her. You haven't actually indicated this yet to her, but you think it's pretty much in the bag. And just before you go to her and ask her the question, she lets you know that she's done with the relationship. And your life starts to come crashing down around you. Because you'd already mapped that out in your mind as to what it was going to look like. The job that you've been training for, maybe for years at university, training for a specific job, you've done an internship in a specific job, but you can never get the job. You've graduated from university, it's been several years now, and although you've tried to get this role, you can just never get it. You're just struggling to find a job that really fits for you. And you're getting to your mid-30s and you start to wonder, what am I going to do with my life? Where is this going to fit now? Or maybe you had your dream job, but you just lost it. And you're not sure how you're going to afford the mortgage. Are you going to afford to move on? And then there's the kids. You've been walking through trials with them for years. You remember the small stages that people do find hard and are indeed hard, but you look back on them with fondness. Because things have changed now and the kids have got older. You remember God walking with you through the trials of those younger years, the sleepless nights, the health issues that seem to come around all the time for little ones. But they've now gone. Same with the years of school, helping them adjust to all their different classmates and being bullied and what that means and going through life with different, different friends and lack of friends at different times, wondering where they fit. And then there's the teenage years desperate to help them fit in but now in their later years you're aware that they are falling away from god with a rapid rate everything you've instilled into them they don't want to bar off. and they're running far away from the lord and then there's friendships which come and go in our lives And for whatever reason, you you can't work it out, but for whatever reason, you're aware that you feel, even in the midst of a room full of people, alone and disconnected. You're not quite sure how you got to the place you got to, but you're aware that you are certainly there. Maybe even a marriage friendship. You're aware of the good times, but you're aware in your marriage these are not good times at the moment. And I don't know how we're going to make it. As sure as sparks fly upwards, man is born to trouble. It's a fact of life. And it's a fact of Christianity. And it's a fact of God's word. But here's what I think is so amazing about Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 teaches us one thing above all things. Everything comes together to thrust one message into our hearts. And here's what it is. Whatever the circumstances of our lives, we have nothing to fear. Because there is one who is truly great, who is always with us. For indeed, as sure as sparks fly upwards, troubles fall. Man is born to trouble. But whatever the circumstances of our lives, we have nothing to fear. Well, why? Well, because there is one who is truly great, who is always with us. That's exactly what this chapter is all about. See, this chapter really does mark the turning point of the whole book. And so by way of background, if you want to understand it, and you need to understand it to really understand the implications here, this is a turning point and a change in pace across the whole book of Isaiah. In chapters 1 through to 39, the primary message has been one of judgment. The primary thing that Isaiah has been thrusting upon us all the time is the issue of judgment. Israel and Judah, as the people of God, have been living a season, an extended season, of total rejection of God. They're living in a great time of wealth, of peace, of prosperity, as a result, they've actually decided to exchange the Creator for the created. They've started to find comfort in stuff rather than Him. They've really rejected Him by now. They've become a greedy people, a selfish people, an arrogant people. The people are filled with drunkards and bribers. They have no regard as a nation before the Lord of who He really is. And so God comes to Him. And the person of Isaiah and prophesies to them through Isaiah that judgment is indeed coming on them. As a consequence for their sin, he will judge them. And how do they respond as a nation? They think it's a joke. They think you won't do that. They're so arrogant and up themselves, they just think God won't do that at all. It's no big deal. I'm not even sure if he can do it. But then in chapter 39... Isaiah predicts exactly what God is going to do to Judah. And he explains to them in chapter 39 that he will take Judah into exile in Babylon. They think it funny. But in 586 BC, just over a century after Isaiah spoke these words, that's exactly what happened. The Babylonian army overwhelmed Jerusalem and led the survivors, the small remnant off to captivity in Babylonia, some 700 miles away from Judah. The Babylonian army came in, they, they, they killed the city and decimated the city. It was like a rainforest really being slayed before the people. But there's few survivors, the remnant, they then take, they put them in chains, and they march them some 700 miles away. And as these exiles arrived now in Babylon... And as they start to do life in Babylon, this small remnant, they must have been overwhelmed, don't you think? And how would you feel? You're aware that God has said that this is exactly what's going to happen. You didn't believe it. But then it does happen. And you're in chains 700 miles away from home. They would have been sitting by the rivers of Babylon knowing that they had completely rejected God. They remembered a time when it was said over them in Genesis chapter 18, their forefather Abraham, that they would be a great city, that they would be a nation that would number more than the stars of heaven, that through them every nation of the world would be blessed. But now they're in chains in somebody else's country, far away from home, with seemingly no way back for them. And they sit there defeated, they sit there disillusioned, they sit there downcast. And it's all because of their own sin. They had rejected God. And Isaiah could really stop right there. The end of 39, God had warned his people, they had rejected him. He had come in his wrath towards them. God would have been perfectly just to stop there, would he not? Notice then the first two words of chapter 40. This is what he does do to the people. The start of a major new section of the book, a section that was written well over a 100 years before the Babylonian exile even occurred. A moment and a chapter, a whole section now through to the end of the chapter that was so clearly written for the remnant, for this people that were now finding themselves in exile. Notice the first two words that God says to them. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. That's astounding grace. They deserved wrath, ongoing wrath. They'd rejected the Lord. But now he's coming after them, not in judgment. He is coming after them to comfort. I mean, we could just stop right there. And behold our God, couldn't we? What a gracious King. What a merciful Father. Even when mankind mess up, even when mankind screw up before the Lord and reject Him, He comes not in judgment. He comes in grace and love and comfort. He could have left them. But He was not prepared to do that because they were His people. So even though they've rejected him, he wants to come now in comfort after them. And What he does is through Isaiah's prophecy, he gives them hope. He wants to give this small remnant who are in chains in Babylonia hope of something else to come. And so he begins in those verses that we've already read this morning by explaining to Judah, I'm still going to send you a king. Even though you find yourself in this moment in chains in Babylon. You have nothing to fear because I'm still going to send one. You are still going to be a great nation. You are still going to enjoy the joys of what it is to be God's people. I'm still going to send a king through you who will be a blessing to all the nations. And this king, verse 10, will be an all-conquering king. No enemy will be able to stand before him. Nothing will be able to stand against his rule and his majesty and his order. When he comes, he will be a generous benefactor. And more than that, when he comes, he will be a gentle shepherd. Judah, when this king comes, he will come after you, not in judgment, but he will come after you and he will hold you and nurse you and care for you like a shepherd would a lamb. What hope that would have given them, don't you think? What joy to know in all grace that the king is going to come and he is going to care for them in his mercy like a shepherd would a lamb. And then he goes on to tell them towards the end of the chapter into the next chapter that Judah prior to that moment arriving in the intermittent future, Judah, I'm still going to be with you. While you wait for the coming king, I'm going to walk with you and know you see, the Lord is aware that this is going to be a challenge for Judah. Would it not be for you? He's aware that this is going to be difficult for you while you're in chains in another nation. You know, even young men are going to grow weary. Even young men will fall exhausted. Judah, I know this is going to be difficult for you. And yet he tells them numerous times towards the end of this chapter and into the next chapter, Judah, you need not fear. Why? Let me tell you, because I'm with you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to be with you, Judah, to strengthen you, to help you and uphold you. And in verses 12 through 26, then this text that we have before us today, the body of this text which we're going to be looking at, God in His grace pulls back the curtain to Judah to reveal to them just how great He is. And this isn't just a random greatness. This isn't just, oh, just wanted to let you know how amazing I am. This is comforting greatness. Because he wants to reveal to them, this is who I really am. This is how great I am in my abilities, in my capabilities, in my competencies. And Judah, I wanted you to know it. Because when you're in change and you doubt whether I'm able to do anything about it, when you're in chains and you doubt whether I can really send a king, and when you're going through trials and difficulties and you doubt whether I'm really with you, I want you to know exactly who's with you. I want you to realize I'm with you in my greatness. And so he spends verse after verse after verse pulling back the curtain on his greatness. Why does he do that? Well, because he wants Judah to know one thing. He wants Judah to know that whatever the circumstances of their lives, they have nothing to fear. Because there is one who is truly great, who is always with them. My friends, over two and a half thousand years on from this moment, as the people of God that we are now, this is a truth that we all need to hear sometimes, isn't it? When the sparks start flying upwards... And the troubles fall. We need God to reveal himself and his majesty towards us. And we need to be reminded, who is it that holds us? Who is it that's holding me like a shepherd is a lamb? Well, behold your God then in his greatness. Because this is indeed him. This is the one who holds you. Which is why you have nothing to fear. Four points then. Four things about his greatness. Four points that I want us to see about the one who holds us in our lives. Who is it that holds you? Well, number one. He's the one who is greater than creation. I mean, check this out. Because this is great stuff. Verse 12. It says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weigh the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Isaiah starts wonderfully by taking us into a workshop. And as we enter into the workshop, what we quickly realize is somebody's been making something quite incredible in this workshop. Somebody's been making the heavens and the earth. And what should become immediately obvious to everybody in this room and everybody examining this incredible universe and world is that a rookie tradie hasn't had a go at this. This isn't somebody who's had a go at building something incredible. This is a wise master craftsman. I mean, look at the words. This is somebody who has measured it, who has marked it off, who has enclosed, who has weighed. This isn't somebody having a go. This is somebody who knows with exactness what has gone on here. And to help us see just how great this one is, Isaiah takes us through a series of questions to reveal to us just how great this craftsman is. And so he asks us, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? You know, I remember preaching on this text a number of years ago when I, was a, when I used to work with teens. And for, for, to try and work out how much I could pour into the hollow of my hand, I did it live on stage. It was messy, so I'm not going to do it now. But... I can basically take a t- tablespoon of water in the hole of my hand. That's the hole of your hand. If you cup your hand and you put water in, I could manage a smashing tablespoon. It wasn't very impressive. It's not a lot. You know, you really can't handle a lot of water in your hand when you do your math, okay? But when you realize how much water is in the earth, that's a staggering amount. Over 70% of our earth is covered in Water. Here's the stats for you. There are 1,386 billion cubic kilometres of water on our Earth. 1,386 billion cubic kilometres. So one kilometre by one kilometre by one kilometre, there's 138,000 million billion of those. Okay, it's an awful lot. If you want to know what that is in litres, it's this, 1,386 billion trillion litres of water. Now... They're figures that you do not understand. They're figures that I don't understand. Somebody on a big calculator somewhere has gone, oh, I know how to work it out. I can't think like that. This is what I think about. If everybody on our planet today had a bath, if everybody on our planet today had a bath, not just one bath, but 2.5 billion baths, all at the same time, there would still be water left over. That's an incredible amount of water. So in my hand, tablespoon. In God's hand, all the waters of the earth. That's how great and that's how majestic he is. He then continues, Who has marked off the heavens with a span? Now when it comes to measuring the heavens, they are so big that we can't use kilometers or miles to actually measure them in and of ourselves. The numbers are just too big for us to be able to comprehend. And so we have to measure the heavens using light years. Well, to explain a light year, it's it's not as complicated as it seems. One beam of light travels at 186,000 miles per second. What that means is every second, one beam of light travels around the earth seven times. So a light year is how far That one beam of light can go in a year. And as I said to you, that's a very, very big number. So you have to talk about light years. So one light year is one beam of light traveling 186,000 miles per second for a year. It's a very long way. That's a massive figure. Well, here's the thing. The known universe is 93 billion light years across. So it's how far that one beam of light will go if it travelled for 93 billion light-years. The reason why that's known as the known universe is because nobody's built a telescope big enough yet to see beyond it. Scientists know as soon as they build a bigger telescope, they'll realise it's bigger than they ever thought. We can't measure the universe, basically, because it's always expanding, it's always growing, and as soon as we build a bigger telescope, we realise it's bigger than we ever thought. But Isaiah's point is that God can. He can measure it between his thumb and his little finger. And that's all he needs to measure off the heavens. He then continues, Who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? You know, the French Alps alone are 4,800 meters high in places. I remember my first ever trip on a plane. I was going to Malta with Emma's family. Before I was married, Emma's family and my family went to Malta. And so I remember getting on the plane for the first time. And I was so excited because I always wanted to get on a plane. And the best bit is the takeoff. And then you just... Yeah, it's a bit anticlimactic after that. But I got off at the takeoff. It was just so cool. And then we're flying over France. And I managed to get a window seat. I bullied Emma into it, basically. I said, oh, I think I need to sit by the window in case, I don't know, maybe travel sickness or something. And, oh, occasion. Okay. So I'm sitting by the window... And I'm getting bored. You know, the flight's going on and on. The takeoff was ecstatic. But now I'm getting a bit bored. And I saw something that I'll never forget. I looked out the window and there's clouds, clouds, mountain peaks. Because we were going over the French Alps. Those things were massive. I remember looking down and the clouds started to clear as you're looking down. And you realize these mountains are massive. Well, who amongst us could take those mountains and all the mountain ranges of the earth, and put them on scales. None of us. But Isaiah's point is the Lord can do that. He can enclose all the dust of the earth in a measure. He can weigh the mountains on scales, and the hills in a balance. And all the way through, you get this sense of this is easy for him. The hollow of his hand, the breadth of his hand, scales. It's like when you're a kid, And and you're like, you're finding it hard to get the top off a pop bottle. And you think, you know, this is clearly stuck for life. And then your dad comes and goes, gives you it back. And you think, well, I must have loosened it or something. You know, you just get this idea that this must just be easy. You know, hard for me, but easy. And that's exactly the way this is done. This is easy competence for the Lord. Such is his splendor and in his might. And in verse 13, 13, importantly for Judah, Isaiah explains that God can do all of this, and indeed made all of this, according to the wisdom and his strength of his own might. Read with me. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding. My friends, sometimes we just get a bit big for our boots, don't you think? You look on at God at different times in the midst of trial and you wonder, Lord, where are you? What are you doing? As if we know better. And God looks back at us and says, you know what? When I created everything, where were you? When I created everything, I needed nothing. All the ideas, all the genius were his alone. God imagined every tropical fish, every mammal that walks the earth, every bird of the air. He established every function of gravity. He shaped the galaxies as irregular and spiral and elliptical. And he did all these things according to the wisdom of his own might. You know, to Judah and Babylon, this would have been incredible. Because as they're sitting in chains and the Babylonians start to teach them their religion, the Babylonian religion is that God himself kind of doesn't exist. There are just gods. And the gods would have come together to do creation. But no one god would be great enough to do that by themselves. And so Marduk, the pagan god of creation, would have to consult with I. The all-wise. And together they would conspire as to how to create the worth. And God then addresses Judah through Isaiah and says, "Uh -uh. I did it all. And I did it all by myself. What a comfort, don't you think? For them to know that that's the God that's saying, I'm with you. I'm standing with you. I'm going to strengthen you by my arm. I'm going to keep you. Judy. you have nothing to fear. I'm with you. What a comfort. What a comfort to us as well, don't you think? The different things that go on in our lives that we just think, God, where are you? What's going on? He looks back and says, I've got you. You may not understand, but I've got you. I hold you. The God who is greater than creation holds us. That's not all he's greater than. Number two, he is the one who is greater than the nations. Look with me at verse 15. He says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. And if you were carrying a bucket in your yard this afternoon and for whatever reason you needed to go from the tap to the one end or the other of your yard and you filled up the bucket and as you're walking along you touch your leg and one mere drop, one drop falls out the side of that bucket, rolls down the side of the bucket and touches the ground, what would you do? I suggest to you, you like me, would continue walking because it's no big deal, right? One drop falling from a bucket. There's not many people that are going to go, oh my goodness, okay, back to the tap, fill it up. You're not going to do that because it's one, one drop. And what God's saying here through Isaiah is the standing of the nations, all of the nations put together. China, United States of America, Rome, Babylon, Egypt, you name it. All the superpowers that have ever gone about before Him in standing They're like a drop from a bucket. That kind of puts things into perspective, does it not? Lord, where are you when the nations are doing this? Lord, where are you when this dude is giving us the budget? And he looks back and says, "Um, Excuse me. They're like a drop in a bucket before me. I think I can cope. He then continues that very same line of thinking in verse 21. Who to 24, listen, he says this? Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its habitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them like a tent to dwell in? Who brings princes to nothing, and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. What a comfort this must have been to Judah. They're in captivity in Babylon. The Babylonian empire by now is vast and huge. This remnant is small and decrepit. They would have been aware, in and of ourselves, there is no way out of this. We are never going to get back home. We would never, ever be able to defeat this army. This nation is too great for us. It's no surprise then that they would be wondering, even though the Lord is making such promises, as to whether he can really pull it off. And he makes it clear to them, Judah, let's be clear. Although you're in chains in Babylon... Let me tell you what the Babylonians are to me. They're like grasshoppers before me. Judah, I've got it. You don't need to fear. All the nations of the earth, they're like a drop coming out of the side of the bucket before me. What a comfort that would have been to them, don't you think? My friends, what an awesome God he is. Don't you see this? This is incredible. You know, sometimes I wish we were more like kids. You know, when you say things to our Lydia sometimes, you know, you say, Lydia, your dad is the strongest person in the world. And her eyes go big and she goes, Really? And you go, Not really, no. But I just like your reaction. You know, I, you just, think, I, I just love it when you get kids excited. Well, God is telling us here, I have all of the creation sorted out. Such is my greatness. All the nations that you can get fearful about, don't worry about it. I've got it. They're like grasshoppers before me. Oh, you know, sometimes I wish that we would, that our eyes would still go big. Like, yeah, get yeah, that's who you are. Why do we believe it when we're six and then live when we're 36 as if that God doesn't exist? He does, and he's got it, and he's got our lives. And in verse 18, he goes on to say it, I think, so wonderfully, that number three, he is the one who stands alone. I love this. Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? You know, the Bible often describes God using metaphors as like something. And that's how we as human beings kind of get our handle around who God is. It's so helpful when we see things metaphorically. That's why preachers often use metaphors to try and get a handle on things. And the Bible does that a lot. And so we see that God is like a lion, a fountain, like a tower and a husband, like a father and a soldier. They're all useful metaphors to help us understand who God really is. And they're great. And we should see them in context for, who, for what they really do. And they help us to get a handle on God. But in getting a handle on God, we must never, church, we must never then reduce God to being that thing. He's like that thing. But my friends, God is completely other. The Bible sings and states time and time again that there is no one like our God. He's above and beyond us in every way we can ever imagine. He's infinite. He is independent. He is unchangeable. He is eternal and majestic. No one of us in the room is any one of those things. We like to think we're independent, but we're not independent at all. We're utterly dependent on all sorts of things all of the time. God is all-wise, all-truthful, all-knowing, all-present. Can you imagine that? God is here to minister to His people right now, And on the other side of the world, he's ministering to them at exactly the same time. In all his glory and all his fullness. Can you do that? I I can't do that. I can barely be in one place at one time. Barely alone other places at the same time. Yet God can do these things in a moment. He's all-knowing and all-truthful. He's all-good, all-loving, all-merciful, all-holy, all-righteous. We're none of these things in the fullness. It's so easy to make God small, is it not? And yet the Bible takes our hands and goes, bah! that's how big he is. Matthew Henry says it this way, I love it. He says, the greatest and best man in the world must say, by the grace of God, I am who I am. But God says simply this, I am who I am. That's the one I want to worship. He's not like anyone. I'm just, I am. A.W. Pink then goes on to say, in conclusion of that, he says, God then is solitary in his majesty, unique in his excellency, and peerless in his perfections. And my friend, so he is. He is solitary in his majesty. He is unique in His excellency. He is peerless in His perfections. There is no one like our God. He is the one who stands alone. And how good it is then to know that it is Him that holds you. Don't you think? He isn't just anyone. But He's one that is greater than creation. One that is greater than the nations. One who stands uniquely alone and then looks you in your eye and says, Listen, I've got you. I'm hemming you in both behind and before. I'll leave the shade at your right hand. I will ensure that your foot doesn't slip. And I'll do this both now and forevermore. Judah, you have nothing to fear because I'm with you. And Isaiah wants Judah to know all this. He wants them to know that God is greater than creation, that God is greater than the nations, that he is the one that stands alone. Then there's one more thing he wants them to know. One more thing about the majesty of the Lord. Number four, he is the one who is ever sustaining. And I love this. Look at verse 25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number calling them all by name. Listen to this. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power not one is missing. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power not one is missing. You know, I grew up in the country, and one of the great things about growing up in the country when you're a kid is the sky seems pretty darn massive. I mean, in Spalding, where I grew up as well, it's completely flat, so it's like living on the sea. There is, there, you can't see any hills any, anywhere around, there's nowhere around that you can see any hills whatsoever. It's completely flat. And so in the daytime, the sky was massive. All the time, it was just huge, and sunsets would just be some of the best time of day because you'd see the sun setting and you'd see the sun, see the sky all changing colours all the time as it sets. And then when it does set, because street lamps had barely caught on in Spalding when I lived there, you can see a lot of stars, and you can't just see a lot of stars; you can see thousands. I used to love going out into. We lived on a, a quarter of an acre plot, so we'd go out to the bottom of the garden, and you would just look up, and you would just be like, "This is, this is amazing." You see the Milky Way and all the the, the string that comes with that, and you would just look. And different times, Dad would say, oh, "Why don't we count them?" You'd Like, "Yeah, okay, let's do it." Okay, I'm lost already. Um, you know, there's just so many of the things, because the sky is filled with stars. I remember then when I moved to Australia in 2010. One of the things that generally I found quite unnerving is that there is a different set of stars here. You may not realize that, but when you go to the other side of the hemisphere, they're very different. You're seeing a different set altogether. And so I moved to Australia, and you're like, okay, well, you know, where's the, the North Star? And Oh, gosh, where's it gone? You know? And you start to see all these other stars, and it was quite unnerving. But again, there were thousands of stars Well, whatever hemisphere you live in, whether it be the northern or the southern hemisphere, the reality is we don't see the half of the stars that are really there. In our galaxy alone, there are 400 billion stars. One galaxy, our galaxy, 400 billion stars. And it's estimated that there are over 125 billion different galaxies, all with around 400 billion stars in. That's a lot of stars. And God looks us in in our eyes as his people and says, and you know what? I created all of them. And I called them each by name. Every single one of those 400 billion stars and over 125 billion galaxies, I called them a name. And I call them out each and every night by name. And by my power, I sustain them so that not one is missing. Does that not just blow your mind? When you go out tonight into your garden, I want you to do this. Go into your garden, look up, and be aware that every star that you see, even though you're seeing only a tiny fraction of what's there, every one of them has been called out this day by God. And every one of them is still there because by his power he's sustaining them. And as you look at those stars, here's what I want you to realize. Here's what I want you to treasure. The one who sustains the stars holds you with even greater care and vigilance. The one who created the stars created you. And the one who sustains the stars, sustains you with even greater care and vigilance. How do I know that? Well, here's how I know. Because the one who sustains the stars didn't send his son for them. He sent his son for you. however majestic the stars are, however great the stars are, that he sustains with his power. He didn't send Jesus for them. He sent them for you. By name. To rescue you. Isn't that incredible? What hope that must have given Judah. What hope that should give us. My friends, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then thank you so much for coming. Thank you for so much for being a part of our church today and giving us the honor of having you here. I want you to know everything that you've heard today from God's word of his greatness is completely true. This is who He really is in His majesty and His splendor and His greatness. He's above and beyond us in every single way imaginable. And that includes His holiness. He's above and beyond us in His moral purity as well. And although that's great, that's what gives us the challenge. Because He made it clear in Scripture that in His holiness, He's made us to worship Him, to be with Him, to spend time with Him. And yet the Bible is clear that each and every person that's ever lived has rejected Him. Exchanged worshipping Him for enjoying creation instead and worshipping ourselves. It's what sin really is, just rebellion against God, a refusal to live for Him and a desire to live for ourselves. And the Bible makes it clear that because of that we are objects of His wrath. And if you want to read about it, read about it in chapters 1 through 39 of this book. And yet God is not just a God of wrath. He's a God of grace. And he comes then and he says, comfort, comfort. our friends, if you're not a Christian, then you are an object of his wrath, as was I. But in his grace, he sent his son 2,000 years ago, the king that these verses speak of. The one who had come to conquer. The one who had come to save. The one who had come to gather his people like a shepherd would a lamb. And Jesus Christ came and he hung upon a cross in your place. And before he broke his last, he simply exclaimed, It is finished. And everyone around was wondering, what's finished? And in the scripture it explains what was finished. The greatest rescue mission ever told was finished. Because Jesus Christ died on a cross in that place, not only to endure physical pain, he endured the greatest pain of all, namely the wrath of the Father in our place. And the good news of the Bible then is all who put their faith in him as Lord and Savior, who turn from their sin and instead give themselves to him as the King and Lord of all, they'll be saved. Christianity has nothing to do with what you can do for God. That is never the starting place, nor the primary aim. Christianity screams and declares to us, you are an object of his wrath, so I have sent my son for you. So believe and have life. Christianity is all about what he's done for us. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then I urge you today, put your faith in Him as Lord and Savior. And today, you will know what it is to be saved. Forgiven of your sin. Reconciled to the Father that made you. He will look at you as if you have no sin. And you may wonder, how is that possible? It's possible because Jesus, who died on the cross in your place, had never sinned. And through faith, He clothes you in His sinlessness. And that's how God then looks at you. It is scandalous grace. But I heard you do that today before you even go home. If, though you are a believer, which is many, if not most of us in this room, here's my encouragement to you. Whatever the circumstances of our lives, we have nothing to fear. Because there is one who is truly great, who is always with us, he's greater than creation greater than the nations. He stands uniquely alone and he is one who is ever sustaining. So as sure as sparks fly upwards, troubles do fall. But as Christians, we have nothing to fear because the Holy One of Israel is with us. Amen. My friends, we're not going to sing to close because I have gone on. But I want us to stand on. I just want to pray for us as a local church. Lord, I thank you that as your eye goes to and fro across the earth, you're mindful of us gathered here today in Normanhurst West Public School as your people. Lord, I do pray for all those that are walking through trial right now that would identify this period of their lives as one where, yeah, the sparks are flying. Lord, would this truth of your nearness be burnt into their hearts today? Would there be no individual in the room that would leave this room with fear? But instead, Lord, would the lasting fruit would be that we would fear not. As we realize you and your greatness are with us. And Lord, I do pray for all those that don't know you as Lord and Savior. Lord, would you rescue them. Would you open their eyes to behold the wonders of the gospel, to behold the wonders of the truths of scripture. Lord, I thank you then that when we do that, you keep us and hold us not just today, but from this time forth and forevermore. So we are safe and secure in your hands, Lord. And in you then, we find a sweet peace. In Jesus' name, amen.